This is Intro to Opera. I'm your host, Timothy Nelson, our assistant director of InSeries, and we have another weekly podcast called InTune, where we talk about art, music, opera, theater, and the way it enriches our lives and how we can do a better job and be more impactful in doing that as a company. But this podcast are short introductions to the Metropolitan Opera's nightly streaming broadcasts. This is episode five. We've opened on Monday with Tristan de Zalda, and then tonight is the last of the ring cycles with Goethe Demeron, which means last night we had Siegfried, the night before Die Valkyrie, and on Tuesday night, Das Rheingold. Now I have to make a confession. I didn't make it through Siegfried last night. In fact, I made it through about five minutes of it. I'll tell you why. Doing two podcasts about the operas yesterday, and then also watching a whole Wagner opera every night this week, has proven a little heavy, and I took the night off, which means tomorrow I will be binging on Siegfried out of order because I do intend to watch Goethe Demerang tonight. It is my favorite of the cycle. I didn't know until I was preparing for this podcast that uh, he had originally, Wagner had originally intended for Goethe Demerang to stand alone as an opera. I knew that he had started at the end, uh, but I hadn't realized that it was originally conceived just as this opera. And that makes a lot of sense because Goethe Demerang is the most compelling by itself. Its characters are this will sound glib, the most human, because they are human, but also because he gives them greater dimension. They aren't as much archetypes. Uh, and it's much more about uh, a very human drama of love and betrayal and how that, of course, escalates to be on a, a universal, godly uh, status. Kirsten um, Demerung, just to give a, a brief synopsis of it, it opens with a prelude. Um, the prelude is the Norn sisters. Three sisters, this of course mirrors the three Rhine maidens in Das Rheingold and who will appear at the end of this opera. Three Norn sisters who are the daughters of Erda. You'll remember Erda, she's the Earth Mother and she is actually the mother of the Valkyries, so she's Brynhilda's mother with uh, Wotan. She has these other daughters called the Norn sisters who are not the daughters of Wotan. I don't know who their father is. And they spend all their time weaving the strings of life. Uh, it's a beautiful actual, actually, metaphor of how lifetime history is a, is a fabric cloth woven of strings, and these three sisters keep it all together. And at the end of the prologue, uh, the string breaks, and humanity is left on its own. It's really, really um, powerful stuff I have to say. I'm always surprised by how much it moves me. The first scene takes place on Earth, in an earthly kingdom, and we have a a ruler named Gunther, his half-brother Hagen, and Gunther's sister Gultrona. A lot of G's here. Uh, and Siegfried has arrived here as a guest. Hagen, the half-brother of the, the ruler, uh, Gunther, tries to persuade Gunther that he should take a, hus a wife and that Brunhilde should be his wife. It's not clear how they've heard of Brunhilde, but there you go. And that uh, Gultrona should be married to Siegfried to protect the family line. Hagen himself is very quiet, very um, uh, Machiavellian. We don't really get a sense of his character yet, but he reminds his sister Gultrona, who protests and says that Siegfried is in love with Brunhilde, that she possesses a potion, that this potion can be given to Siegfried and he will instantly forget all about Brunhilde and fall in love with her. Now this potion bit is, I think, very interesting because of course a potion is exactly the uh, dramatic crux of Tristan as well. And last night when I was preparing the Siegfried podcast, I thought I'd play a bit of the Siegfried Idyll that is not from the opera, but a piece that he wrote for his son Siegfried's birthday. And it opens with the music of Tristan. So I decided not to include it lest 
lest it confuse our audiences. Uh, but it is telling to me that he was already starting to grapple with the concepts, musical and dramatic, that would become Tristan as he's writing Goethe Demerang. He, of course, also writes the Wessendok Lieder, a set of five songs with texts by Maria Wessendok, a woman he was having an affair with while taking money from her husband, who was his patron. Um, and he set five of her poems, and in those those uh, settings, he's working out the themes of Tristan the Chord, but also the opening of Act Three. Um, so there, there are all these things tied around, and I don't think you can divide the ring uh, as neatly from Tristan or Tristan from the rest of Wagner's work as, as a lot of people like to do uh, so easily. Now, getting back to the story, Siegfried comes in. Uh, he agrees to this. Uh, oh, I mean, he protests. Of course, he protests that he's in love with Brunhilde. Um, Gultruna suggests that they have a toast together, and she prepares, of course, the potion. Dun, dun, dun. He toasts to Brynhilde, takes a sip, and instantly forgets all about her. He uh, offers uh, to marry Gultruna, and he offers to win Gunther a wife, and who is the wife he's going to win for Gultruna? Brynhilde, of course. So he leaves to go uh, capture Brynhilde. Uh, to make this agreement, Gunther and... Um, Siegfried toasts together, and Hagen silently holds the glass they toast with. Again, he's very Iago in this way, until we find later what his motivation is. Uh, Brynhilde is uh, visited by one of her sisters, Valtrauta, who is one of the uh, Valkyries. This is a long scene, uh, often given to a sort of emerging Wagnerian soprano, because it's a it's a big sing, but, but nothing compared to Brynhilde. It's also one of the most fantastic scenes in the opera. Um, Voltrota tells uh, Brunhilde that Wotan is dismayed, his spear has broken, he's lost his powers. He waits in Valhalla, where he collects the wood to eventually set the place on fire, and he sends out his ravens to bring back news of the world, and he's waiting for the time when the ring may be uh, returned to the Rhine maidens. Uh, Valtrauta, Brunhilde's sister, begs her to take the ring and return it, because in returning it, Albrecht's curse would be broken, and the gods would be restored to power and health. But, of course, Brynhilde's not going to do this. It's the one love token she has from Siegfried when he left her at the end of the last opera, or in a ring of fire on top of the mountain. Um, Siegfried arrives. He has wearing that magic helmet from Das Rheingold, the Tarnhelm, and uh, he has made himself look like Gunther. Um, and he tells Brynhilde he's claimed her as his wife. Uh, Brynhilde protests violently. Siegfried overpowers her. Overpowers her. It's quite um, violent and, and almost uh, abusive. He snatches the ring from her finger and places it on his own hand. And that's the end of Act 1. Act 2 opens with Hagen, our Machiavellian silent character, waiting by the Rhine, and his father comes to visit him. And who is his father but Alberich, which you'll remember from Das Rheingold, and he's also in Siegfried comes back and forth. Uh, he is betrayed by Wotan, and he puts a curse on the ring, and he's been sulking around, kind of like Gollum, trying to get this ring back. He has a son, Hagen, who now he can use, and he convinces him that he should swear to kill Siegfried and acquire the ring. And then Albrecht leaves once he's gotten this out of Hagen. Uh, Siegfried arrives. He's now in normal Siegfried uh, fair. Uh, he's left Brynhilde on the boat for Gunther to come and take, uh, and Hagen summons everyone around to Gunther and they have a, a wedding ceremony. Um, and they're surprised to learn that there uh, is not a battle, but rather a wedding, a party. Gunther takes the miserable, the 
brokenhearted Brunhilde, who into the, the court, and she is astonished to see Siegfried there, who doesn't recognize her at all. And then she notices the ring on Siegfried's hand, and she knows it was him that uh, accosted her, that violated her, that stole the ring, and not Gunther. She's, of course, furious. She denounces Siegfried. She says that he, he was her love and that he stole the ring. Um, and they uh, have a, a swear on the spear of Hagen. Um, Siegfried swears that his story is true, that he doesn't even know this woman. Uh, Brynhilde swears at the point of the spear that her side of the story is true, that he was her lover. And by swearing on the spear, it means whoever is found to be false will be killed by Hagen and his spear. Uh, Again, Hagen is very quiet, he's very uh, plotting, he's an interesting character. Um, Siegfried then takes Gultruna into the wedding feast, leaving Brynhilde alone with Hagen and Gunther. Now, ashamed by Brynhilde's outburst, Gunther uh, agrees with Hagen's idea that Siegfried should be killed so that Gunther can regain his honor. Uh, and Brynhilde, who's in a place of deep rage and hurt, tells them how they can kill Siegfried. He betrays Siegfried and says, if you stab him in the back, he will die. And so Gunther and Hagen plan to throw a hunting party to lure Siegfried out on it, uh, and when they have him alone, to stab him in the back and kill him. And Hagen ends the act by repeating the music he sang to Albrecht to acquire, to acquire the ring and to rule the world through its power. Uh, now, our lovely Rhine maidens come back at the beginning of Act 3. They are uh, in the water, swimming about. They see Siegfried, who's out on the hunt. Uh, and they have a conversation, they sort of lure him downstream by himself, and they predict to him that he's going to die, and that uh, his heir uh, will treat them finally with justice, the justice they were robbed of in Das Rheingold. Now, I think one has to remember that they sort of were delinquent in their job in Das Rheingold. It's not like they were protecting the gold uh, fastidiously and it was stolen. They were sort of not doing such a great job, but we'll leave that. Siegfried uh, rejoins the hunters uh, after talking to the Rhine maidens, and while they're resting, he tells the stories of his youth, and Hagen prepares a drink for him, which is another potion, which restores his memory, and he tells the story of meeting Brynhilde and falling in love with her and awakening to fear, but also love with a kiss. But of course, he also reveals that he lied before. Hagen has tricked him. Hagen stabs him in the back with the spear, uh, and Siegfried dies, admitting his love for Brynhilde. Uh, now, they carry the body back to the civilization, and this music, Siegfried's funeral music, is some of the greatest that Wagner ever wrote. It's probably my second uh, favorite music from this opera. Both are in the last piece in Hotel Hemmerung. Uh, I will, I'll play this here below so you can hear it, uh, and I'm going to be quiet just for a bit so you can really hear how powerful and strange and magnetic and perfect, it, it kills me to say, the perfect for the scene this music is. Now, in the final scene of the opera, uh, they are bringing the body of Siegfried back. Uh, everyone is shocked to see it, uh, Siegfried's corpse brought in and not a living Siegfried. Gunther blames Siegfried's death on Hagen, who, uh, Hagen, I should say, who replies that Siegfried had incurred the penalty by taking a false oath and that he admitted to everything, uh, and he claims the ring on Siegfried's finger by right of conquest. Gunther, of course, objects to this. He wants the ring. Hagen and him fight. Hagen overpowers and kills Gunther, but as he moves towards the ring, Siegfried's hand rises up suddenly, 
and Hagen is, uh, is, is fearful and, and scampers away. Uh, then Brunhilde comes in understanding what she has done. Um, and she takes the ring off of Siegfried's hand and she tells the Rhine maidens who are listening at the river that when her ashes are claimed, they should take the, the ring and clean, be cleansed of the curse. She lights a funeral pyre, so a tall pile of wood, but also all the armaments that belong to Siegfried. Um, she sends Wotan's ravens, which are circling above, home with the longed-for tidings. And then she calls her horse, Grana. She jumps on the horse, rides the horse into the pyre, setting everything ablaze. The fire spreads, it burns all the earth. And as it reaches up towards Valhalla to the home of the gods, we hear the music of the Rhine from the beginning. You remember that E flat major from Das Rheingold. It rises out of its banks. The Rhine maidens are with it. The water puts out the fire. The earth is destroyed by fire and water. It is not unlike uh, the trials in Magic Flute, uh, which incidentally the final chorus in Magic Flute, uh, Wagner stole as a quotation in Tannhauser. We'll talk about that in, in, uh, in one Sunday when, when we met broadcast Tannhauser. Uh, the flames of the fire leap up to the gods. They set it on fire. And of course, you'll remember that uh, that Votan was preparing for this because he's put up a pyre inside of Valhalla. The gods are consumed in flame. The curtain falls to the sound of the redemption light motif, which I will also play for you. Now, this story um, on the surface is is perfect for for an opera, and in a way, it's in line with late 19th century romantic opera. It's not unlike, Wagner would hate to hear this said, but the plots of a lot of um, French grand opera um, or Italian melodrama, Verismo. Of course, there's this other side to this, which is elevated and about the gods and things that are noble. Um, it's hard not to get swept away, especially in the famous immolation scene at the end, and in the, the funeral for Siegfried, um, and miss how, of course, nihilistic this story is. It's about people not needing to do better, but rather history will do better for us over time. We will cease, we will fall from the earth, and a new generation will pick it up. But it sort of also takes away the responsibility of improving ourselves while we're here on the earth, uh, which maybe is what Nietzsche meant uh, when he turned away from Wagner in his essay, uh, The Case of Wagner. Nietzsche wrote two essays on Wagner. They're separated by about 10 years. The first one is called The Birth of Tragedy, where he explores why we tell stories, what does it mean that we tell stories, um, how do these make us better, um, and how can they not make us better, so he sort of creates a juxtaposition between a duality between uh, Apollonian ideas, those are noble ideas of the and Dionysian ideas, the base ideas of the flesh, of the god Dionysus, of wine, of fun. Um, and he sort of holds up Wagner as the hero, an example of the new man who will, who will unify these concepts and create a drama which makes us better people. Ten years later, Nietzsche did not feel that this was the case. In fact, he opens his essay by saying he has heard Carmen, Bizet's masterpiece, for the 23rd time, and he never thought there was music like this that could not only make him people him better, but make his people better, make his race better. Um, there's an honesty, he says, to it. And then he goes into Wagner and how uh, dishonest Wagner is, how intoxicating, how um, almost like a drug he is. It's hard to overstate, it's hard to comprehend a composer's music capturing the minds of a generation the way that Wagner's did. It became much more than music, it became 
um, political philosophy, um, philosophy, philosophy. Um, it gave rise eventually to a wave of nihilism um, in, in Europe, particularly in, in the Germanic countries, um, and anti-xenophobia anti, um, and eventually anti-Semitism. Now, we're not going to get into Wagner's views um, on Semitism, anti or other. Um, it's a complicated subject, and he was a complicated man that sort of was ultimately interested in having his work performed. I can sympathize with that. And he would say whatever he needed to say um, to, to or do whatever he needed to do to get it performed. Um, so he was constantly um, uh, contradicting himself and being a hypocrite. Um, and I don't think he was really interested in um, ideologies. He was interested in getting his music performed. But it is a music that captured a generation, gave a rise to a whole new way of thinking post uh, humanism, uh, and of course we can't deny that it has a tie to the Nazis. The Wagner family and Bayreuth, which is the festival uh, center, a theater and other buildings, rehearsal and blah, blah, was built for the ring. It was built to house the uh, production of the ring, which as it, you know, horses flying into into giant fires and Rhine mains, it's, it takes, for, eight, for the middle of the 19th century, it took a very special theater and Wagner raised a lot of money um, in very spurious ways to build this theater. And when it was eventually built, uh, he uh, ordered that it would only ever play his operas, which it has until the last, uh, I think they've stopped that in the last 20 years. Um, it is a palace, a, a church to, to Wagner, which of course is dangerous. The family itself, after Wagner, Siegfried was his son, he was a composer, not a tremendous one, um, but he was committed to carry on his father's legacy. And then his sons, Wolfgang and Wieland, took over after World War II. There's a period during World War II uh, when uh, Bayreuth was shut down. Uh, and of course afterwards it remained shut down because of its close ties to the Nazi regime. There are uh, pictures, um, documentation of the relationship between Hitler and uh, the, the Wagner family. I believe, now I could be speaking out of term, but I believe he was even the godfather of, uh, of one of the Wagner children, Wieland or Wolfgang, or one of the sisters. Um, there were four children, if I'm not mistaken, of, of Siegfried. Um, one is Wieland, one is Wolfgang. Wieland became a very famous director. We'll talk about that in a minute. Uh, then there was an older sister, uh, who is uh, right after Wieland, that is Friedeland. Then Wolfgang was the third child and Verena was the fourth child. Uh, they were the child of Siegfried and his wife Winifred. And um, after Siegfried died, Winifred controlled the festival um, notoriously uh, and um, uh, with, with an iron fist. And she also was very close to Hitler. It is often thought that, that she was very much in love with him and the children have talked about growing up with Hitler coming to Bayreuth and spending time with the family. Um, this is not in and of itself a condemnation. But uh, when the war broke out, um, all of the, the family were very staunch Nazi sympathizers, except for the oldest sister, Friedeland. She broke with the family, she moved uh, into the Allied countries, then she started creating radio broadcasts that were broadcast from Belgium and the Netherlands into uh, Germany, sort of trying to use the Wagner name to recruit people to fight against Hitler. Um, she became a filmmaker, and this is why I'm telling this story. In 1977, so after the war, when they eventually reopened Bayreuth in the late 40s, maybe early 50s, Wieland and Wolfgang took over. And they decided that the only way to sort of cleanse the, the festival of, of 
um, Wagner's Wagnerism, um, all that is Wagner, was to adopt a style of production that was very abstract. Um, and Wieland became a director that did sort of large light beams and a person um, in a, uh, not in a costume that depicts the time, but rather a symbolic costume, uh, moving very slowly. It became a very popular, identifiable style of stage direction. Um, this was really an attempt to be non-controversial. A lot of Wagner's works, especially as we'll learn tomorrow when we talk about Die Meistersinger, are about celebrating Germany and the German tribes and, and the Aryan people. This was a way to escape that. Uh, but in the late 1970s, 1977 to be exact, the German government pressured Bayreuth to create a ring which was really anti-Wagner, an anti-Wagner ring. And they hired uh, Pierre Boulez, who of course is the French composer, studied with Boulanger, um, radical, radical contemporary composer, brilliant, brilliant man, um, if, if rather uh, controversially, famously wrote an essay called uh, Schoenberg is Dead, um, about the end of any sort of perverse adoption of the, the uh, aesthetic of tonalism. It wasn't enough to be atonal, you had to also reject anything that was beautiful, anything that made sense. So Boulez's music, though it's acclaimed, is very much based on mathematical figures um, and concepts of inversion and retrograde, which of course are Baroque concepts, but uh, devoid of a harmonic uh, uh, place because they're captured in a 12-tone setting. But he was also a wonderful conductor, and they hired him, the ultimate French modernist, to conduct the ring cycle in the sacred house of Wagner. And he hired a young director who couldn't have been more than 20, named Patrice Chirot who of course became very famous, um, uh, but he is most famous for this ring cycle. And he created something which today we might not recognize as innovative, but at the time he set the piece in the time that it was written. So at the end of the middle end of the 19th century, when there was this huge political shift uh, in economics um, that became political, of course. Um, no one had done that before, and it was really groundbreaking. Um, the cast included, most notably, Gwyneth Jones, the great uh, Welsh soprano, as Brunhilde. And in that final moment, uh, which which I would advise you to go to YouTube and find the Patricia Rowe uh, immolation scene, uh, Brunhilde jumps into the fire, and the fire engulfs the stage, which is sort of a factory, 19th century factory. And then at the very end, something so simple but so effective that now we steal, we are always borrowing from each other, our, us directors. All the audience, all the uh, chorus turns and looks at the audience. What does this mean? I don't know. Sometimes when I watch it, I think they're saying, now it's your turn, in the way that um, the gods uh, disappear and hand power over to the next paradigm. But sometimes I think they're saying, what the F was that? Um, really questioning the values of this massive thing we've just committed time and energy and money to what exactly, what good comes out of the ring cycle. Um, I don't know the answer to that. I don't think Chiro knows the answer to that. It's very complicated um, because the music is uh, tied uh, inescapably from um, rather evil concepts of exclusion and of uh, a superman and at the same time it uh, captures redemption and the elevated things that had become a bit um at least in the opera houses of europe had become a bit passe to to do elevated things it was high drama all the time um, and no one does that better than wagner and that will continue uh, this week i mean we're going to hear tannhauser uh the the chorus of the pilgrims is one of the 
most uh, enduring faith experiences to, to listen to. Um, and, uh, and it's that chorus, of course, that he borrowed the violin figure from the final chorus of the Magic Flute. For this 1977 ring, uh, Friedelin Wagner was hired to make the film. It was also the first time a ring cycle had been filmed. It was in the early days of filming opera. And she uh, made not only the film, but also the documentary about it. This is the first time Friedelin Wagner was allowed back into Bayreuth, into what had been her home in 1977. She, she lived less than 20 more years and died in 1991. And it was uh, uh, fighting tooth and nail from the government to sort of force that reunification. I don't know personally how the rest of that relationship went. Um, Siegfried had died in 1930. Uh, Wolfgang died uh, in 2010. And after his death, uh, the, the running of the festival very famously was um, was in dispute because uh, Gerard Mortier, who is the great uh, impresario of the 20th century, and ran La Monet and Salzburg and, uh, of course, the Paris National Opera. And he was supposed to come run the New York City Opera, and he suggested some major plans like um, Ligeti's Grand Macabre, like uh, a, an opera of uh, Brokeback Mountain with Bill Viola doing an epic video log on the back, um, a Walt Disney opera, based on Don Giovanni from, um, from Philip Glass. Um, now, some of these will sound familiar. Why? Because he also demanded that the board of the New York City Opera raise a certain amount of money and to close the New York State Theater for one year to do renovations. Um, he then, all of a sudden, big surprise, said, nevermore, I'm not interested. I want Bayreuth. He applied for Bayreuth, and it's largely thought that he was using City Opera as leverage for that job. And... Uh, the closing of the State Theater and the amount of money that they had to to raise and, and the time that was lost is by some credited for the failure of New York City Opera. Um, there was some great work going there on there in the, in the last days, but it was so far removed from what had, had been there under, uh, 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 of course, Beverly Sills and Paul Kellogg. And I, I, I don't think it was possible to, to, to have saved it. And that is at least due uh, to those those demands of Mortier. Um, we can't say what his intention was. Um, he made the application to, uh, to uh, Bayreuth with um, one of the sisters of, one of the daughters of Wieland and Wolfgang, uh, who was running the Aix-en-Provence Festival, really, a, you know, which is a, a great festival, and, and she had given it profound artistic leadership. Uh, he would have been, of course, the first non-Wagner to run the festival. That was not going to be allowed. He did not get the position. Um, the two Wagner sisters of the three that, that very much do not get along were given joint um, leadership of it. And, um, you know, it was controversial in the beginning. One of them is a director and has done some rather uh, questionable things, though I hate to, to comment on production I've not seen. Um, but it seems now things have, have quieted down. Um, you don't hear too much actually about their productions, which could be mean one of two things. Uh, um, Mortier, of course, went on to uh, Teatro Real in Madrid and created um, that Walt Disney opera and Brokeback Mountain. Um, he also brought the Greb Macabre, um, not in the original Salzburg production with Peter Sellers that he had made, but in a new one. Um, and the last time I saw anything of his was Peter Sellers' Indian Queen with Julia Bullock, who of course now is the luminary of her generation. Um, and I am told that Mortier, who didn't come to the premiere, but he did come to the dress rehearsal, heard uh, Lucy Crowe singing Oh Solitude and said that 
that is what he hopes the angels sound like. He wasn't a religious man, but he was, he was very sick with lung cancer and, and died. And again, a complicated figure who did a lot of bad and also gave us some of the most beautiful uh, repertoire and productions of the, the 20th century, really a groundbreaking impresario. So music to listen for tonight. Um, I think to start, the norm music is casts a spell and tells us we're in a very different place than the other operas. And then I think just enjoying that place, enjoy Wagner writing music that is human. Um, you'll start to hear a lot of the light motifs that come fast now um, and on top of each other. Uh, so also uh, don't worry about which ones they are, but try to recognize tunes and feel how they are combined with other tunes um, to, to give us a dramatic context. And then once we get into act three, of course, Siegfried's funeral music, and then the very long, very grueling uh, apotheosis, which is the immolation scene. Listen to the Rhine music come back at the end. You'll hear the Rhine maidens sing the same music they did at the beginning. They, they are a one-note one note ensemble, a one-hit wonder. Um, and the whole thing, we can imagine, beginning again. This is never performed in a single day, of course. Um, in fact, I don't think it's often performed even in two days. I think it's always over four days. I can't imagine uh, what that experience would be like live to go each day. Uh, of course, tickets to Bayreuth are hard to come by. They take years of waiting and you have to know someone. Maybe one day uh, we'll get that experience. Um, I'm very interested in the epic theater experience. Peter Brook uh, did the famous Mahabharata in the late 80s, which was a 10-hour production of the Indian classic that started uh, at 8 in, eight in the evening and ended at 6 in the morning. Um, so you, you went from um, just at dusk to the sun rising and, and it was took place outside in a rock quarry near Avignon. Um, later on it came to New York and the Brooklyn Academy of Music built the Harvey Theater for him for that production, which which is an amazing space. Um, to see the ring, I'm not sure how taking taking full days off um, would be. It's 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 one it's an experience one wants to stay in the same mindset, but um, as we've already said, that mindset with Wagner can be quite um, uh, suffocating, I, I believe, suffocated in beauty, suffocated in high ideas um, that one begins to question. Uh, anyway, Grit and Amarong, uh, the end of the ring cycle, you have made it through, my friends. Um, this piece also stands on its own, so if you haven't heard the rest be, you're in camaraderie with me. I haven't seen Siegfried last night, but I'm still going on with Grit and Amarong today, and hopefully we'll catch up with Siegfried tomorrow. Tomorrow we move on to Die Meistersinger, Wagner's uh, comedy. I, well. Wagner and Verdi are similar in that both saved a comedy for the end. Um, I think Verdi got comedy a little better than Wagner. Um, so don't expect lots of jokes, but expect some amazing music. This is the old Otto Schenk production. So if you haven't liked the new Lepage production, we're going back to the to the, the old classics, Schenk, and also the Tannhauser on um, Sunday is also Schenk. I'll talk again at that time about David Alden and his production from um, Munich of, of Tannhauser, which is... Uh, I think one of his finest productions and is uh, moving in a totally different way and it attacks that Germania Nostra idea uh, that um, that we talked about earlier. The Twilight of the Gods. It isn't often that one watches these metaphysical Wagner operas and can make them relate to the time we're living in, but uh, it does feel a bit twilighty for an old way of doing things. Uh, and that there is a shift in paradigm and all of us are afraid, waiting for what's to come next, but we are afraid together and we will go through this together. <laughs> 